All right, it's good to be back together with you. In our previous message, we looked at the big picture of the glorious church of Jesus Christ, the uh, nature of the church, some of the metaphors that uh, describe what the church is, the body of Christ, uh, the, the family of God. Uh, we looked at the attributes uh, using the Nicene Creed, uh, one church, holy church, uh, uh, apostolic church, and then we looked at the head of the church, some of the functions of Christ's headship. Uh, but now I want us to examine uh, the purpose of the church. In the following two messages after this, uh, we're going to get more practical and more specific about the Great Commission and the multiplication of church planning and, and revitalization uh, and evangelism and all that. But first, we, we need to have an understanding, I think, of, of the purpose of the glorious church of Jesus Christ. Uh, there are three main purposes uh, of the church that I want to highlight. And again, all of this will tie into uh, the Great Commission and the result of the Great Commission. But let's start with number one, the worship and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we could go back and, and just spend time on that Colossians passage uh, and the fact that Christ is to be preeminent. And he's to be preeminent in uh, the universe. He's to be preeminent in the unseen world. He is to be preeminent in the church as well. The Westminster Catechism famously begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's true of the Christian, but it's also true of the church. Our singular goal is to glorify him and enjoy him. And, and we glorify him when we enjoy him. He's worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our sacrifice. He's worthy of our lives. As the, the hymn says, love so amazing, so divine, demands our, our love, our hearts, our all, our allegiance, our attention. The worship and exaltation of the living God has always been a priority for the people of God. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah says that God is zealous for his glory. Now, this is an interesting thing to consider. God is zealous for his glory. Let me read Isaiah 48, verse 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. It's a powerful passage. For my name's sake, for the sake of my praise, for my own sake, for my own sake, how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now this may strike you as odd or weird or strange, but... It's theologically accurate to say that God loves himself. He exalts himself. He will not give his glory to another. It's been said that the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. 
Now, you might say, wait a minute, that sounds odd. It might sound strange. It might sound weird. But it would only be strange or weird if there was something greater or more glorious than God. It would be strange or weird if we did it ourselves, to ourselves, but it's not strange or odd for God to do it. In fact, it's right, it's correct. It's the most loving thing, the most correct thing, the most proper thing, the most sane thing that anyone can do. Uh, John Piper says it well. He says, if there were a person in this room infinitely beautiful, infinitely worthy, infinitely valuable, infinitely satisfying, the most loving thing for that person to do would be to get the attention from all of us and say, look at me, look at me, look at me. But there's nobody here like that. There is one being in the universe like that. There is one all-glorious being, one infinitely valuable being, one all-beautiful being. God in Christ, crucified, risen, reigning, coming, and therefore in order for him to be loving, he must say, look at me, look at me, look at me. It is his kindness in inviting us into the enjoyment of himself. It's the most loving thing he can do to you and I, is invite us into the enjoyment of himself. And so all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the New Testament, God seeks to bring glory to himself. He is consumed with the desire to glorify and exalt himself. And again, that's correct. And his people should be consumed, swept up in, brought along with this same desire to glorify him and exalt him. To say it a different way, the people of God, the church, is God-centered, not man-centered. The church of Jesus Christ is to be God-centered, God-focused, not man-focused. The entirety of the church is to be focused on Christ and the exaltation and enjoyment of Christ. In fact, if you don't enjoy Christ, you're not a Christian. If you don't enjoy Christ, you will not enjoy church and the assembly of God's people because the assembly exists to bring glory to Christ and enjoy Christ. If you don't enjoy Christ, gathering with the Lord's people will be an absolute drain because they should be glorifying and enjoying Christ. The assembly is a place for people to come and publicly enjoy Christ. That is our purpose. Let's look at some passages that draw this out. Philippians 2, verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Acts chapter 5, verse 31 says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. In Hebrews 11, 12, 28 says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Uh, church, that is one of 
our purposes. This is one of the reasons the church exists, is to offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. I suppose we should ask ourselves the question, what, what is worship? What exactly is worship? Well, worship is basically ascribing to God the honor that is due his name. We declare his glory through uh, sermons, through songs, through prayers. And by, and by the way, this is not only true now, it's true in heaven. For all eternity, the redeemed will praise his name. Revelation 4, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And then chapter 5 of Revelation, then I looked, I heard around the throne And the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's worship. In the meantime, the church on earth is the one sphere where Christ's name is truly and genuinely Exalted. It's the one place in the world. The whole world scorns Christ. He does not have the place of preeminence in the world yet. But the church, in the church, he does. It's the one place in the world where Christ is rightly recognized, rightly exalted. In the world, he's not exalted. He's not exalted in the news, he's not exalted in the media. He's not exalted in Hollywood or Bollywood. He is not exalted in the, in the United Nations. He's not recognized. He's not worshipped. He's not ascribed honor by the powerful politicians and people of the day. He's not. He's, he's not recognized. He's not ascribed honor and praise. He's not glorified and enjoyed. He's not given first place. But in the church, he is. He is given first place. In the church, he is ascribed honor and praise. In the church, he is rightfully recognized. In the church, he is remembered for his amazing sacrifice on the cross. In the church, he is enjoyed with table fellowship and the bread and the cup. In the church, he is proclaimed as the one and the only Lord and Savior. In the church, he is preached as the incarnate Word of God. The church is the one place in the world where that happens. This is the purpose of the church. So how exactly does this happen in the church? How does the worship and the exaltation of Christ actually take place? What well, happens really in the preaching and in the singing and in the baptisms and in the Lord's Supper. Ligon Duncan put it like this. Read the Bible. Preach the Bible. Pray the Bible, sing the Bible, see the Bible. In all these things, there is an exaltation, a lifting up, a magnifying of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of the church. David Peterson wrote, The worship of the living and true God is essentially an engagement with him on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. We don't invent how we worship God. 
He tells us how he is to be worshipped. There's another purpose of the church that we see in Scripture, and it is to build up and serve one another in the church. The building up of the body of Christ. That's number two. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, let all things be done for building up. Now, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul's addressing a typical meeting in the early church. He says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation, let all things be done for building up. Uh, let all things be done for edification. Paul also gives instructions to the Thessalonian believers. He says in chapter 5, verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. He prayed for the Ephesian congregation that they will in all things grow up into him who's the head, that is Christ. For from him the whole body's joined and held together by every supporting ligament and grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Each part does its work. Each part. Every part has a job. Every member has a ministry. And this ministry happens through the Holy Spirit's empowering, through spiritual gifts and assignments and roles that he gives all believers. Now, there are four main lists of spiritual gifts. I'm not going to read all of them, but I do want to read a couple. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Those are the four passages. Let me read Romans 12, 4 through 8 here. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I want to read 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11 as well. Bear with me. I know this is a long passage, but it's important you see this. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, working miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So here's the basic idea. The church is one body, and the one body is made up of different parts. Each part has a role. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Okay? So everyone in the body who has the Spirit of Christ, if you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit, You've been given a role, you've been given a gift, you've been given a ministry, 
and you serve one another with that gift. Just as an obvious side note, you can't do this alone. You can't serve the body if you're not with the body. Being in the church and among the church is non-negotiable. The assembly matters. I actually preached this to our church just recently, and, and I was looking at uh, Hebrews 10.25, which says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, this is a, a commandment to be together. Uh, Thomas Schreiner, a, an American New Testament scholar, said recently, we need to be involved in the church since isolating ourselves from others is actually a form of self-worship. I think he's right. He's quoting uh, uh, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1, which says, One who isolates himself pursues selfish desires. He rebels against all sound wisdom. So it might not sound like a big deal. Don't forsake the gathering together, but... This is a big deal. And being in and among the assembly is different than just watching the assembly. And we, again, we, we've seen this with COVID. Uh, the church is not a virtual metaverse. Uh, more than ever, again, this doctrine is being challenged and, and tested. The church needs to, uh, in a corporal sense, gather together. When you gather, 1 Corinthians 11... Four times I think it mentions, when you gather, and when you gather, and when you gather, and when you come together. And again, I, I know the pressures from COVID has put a kind of torque uh, on the church and, and government health orders. I know it has for us, and it's, it's frustrating, it's annoying, uh, we're tired of it. Uh, but it's put a kind of pressure on the church, and some people have just stopped coming. They've stopped gathering, they've stopped meeting together. Some churches stopped meeting and haven't started meeting again. Uh, we started streaming the message uh, because we realized some people might be sick or, or have exceptional reasons for not attending. But let's, let's just be clear. I told our church this uh, last week. There's no such thing as virtual church, virtual Lord's Supper, virtual baptism, just like there's no such thing as a virtual honeymoon or a virtual marriage. Praise the Lord we can watch the sermon online, but praise the Lord that actual church is more than watching a sermon online. Uh, the assembly matters. The one anothering matters. Your gifts matter. Your presence matters. Your love for the body matters. Your service matters. You matter. You matter. And as the, as the pressure on the church continues to heat up, uh, the preaching of the gospel and meeting together maybe become increasingly difficult. You are playing games with your soul if you do not make the assembly together a priority. Again, Tom Schreiner is right. Isolation is a form of self-worship. So more than ever, we've got to meet together, pray together, preach, uh, study together. Teach, train, love, care. Now more than ever, now more than ever, the church needs this. And if we somehow think we know better than what God has ordained, that's a problem. God is infinitely wise in designing the church. So coming together, hearing his word, feasting upon Christ, this is essential, not ancillary.
remember hearing a sermon about a pastor who told about a time he went sailing and he was able to tag along on this race, on this sailing boat. And this was a kind of boat that had about 20 different people on the boat. Each person had a different role to play and these boats go really, really fast. And he tells the story about the captain of the boat at a very critical time during the race they had to pull off this really technical turn around a corner. Apparently, it was a really hard thing to do. And the captain said to the, the people on the ship, he says, hey, everyone, listen, we can win this race. We can win this race. We're getting close to the end. It's going to be tough to pull this off, but I think we can do it. And he looked at each person. said, Abraham, listen, we need you here. We got to have you. You play an important role here. Thomas, you play an important role in this. We need you here. We got to have you. Scott, we need you. We got to have you. And he went around to each person. We can't do this without you. And I thought that's actually a great illustration of, of what leaders need to do and facilitate in the assembly. Each person has a responsibility, has a role, has a function, has something to contribute. I want to pause for a moment and just bring some clarity on this point of gifts. Uh, There is what is called the conventional view of spiritual gifts, and I want to just humbly submit to you that I think it's it's, uh, in some ways off. It's in in some ways wrong. Uh, Now, I'm not even talking about, you know, are there gifts still operational? That's a whole separate question. But I think the conventional way of understanding spiritual gifts is lopsided. I want to explain what I mean. A lot of times people will compile uh, a list of all of these gifts that Paul mentions in the, the four passages that I referred to, and they'll say, here are the options. You know, God has given to each person a gift. Here they are. Uh, gift of tongues, gift of miracles, gift of prophecy, gift of mercy, gift of leadership, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And under this view, which, I, which at least in my understanding is kind of the conventional view, uh, you look through it and you maybe even take a survey and you answer some questions. What do you like? What do you don't like? And, and this is supposed to kind of tell you what your spiritual gifts are. I don't know if you have things like this in, in India, but we have these tests that you know, people take and, oh, you, this, these are your gifts. I, I feel like I've taken a hundred of these tests in my lifetime. And the theory, the idea, is that this will help pinpoint what your spiritual gifts are and where you should serve, where you should strive. I'm going to show you a diagram on the screen of the conventional understanding of spiritual gifts. The conventional approach is that really all our abilities, they're special abilities and they are to be used in ministry. And... You have enablements and abilities and powers. Uh, This is the conventional approach. Now, here's one of the problems with the conventional, traditional view. These these, uh, surveys that people take for their gifts almost always ignore 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. There's a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There's a variety of service, but the same Lord. Variety of activities. So people end up thinking only in terms of gifts as special abilities, and what they'll do is they'll minimize uh, ministry roles, 
ministry assignments, or just general service of all kinds. So when the church needs, you know, Sunday school teachers and helpers, people think, well, that's not really my gift. That's not my special ability. But Paul talks, again, about service and activities in ministries, not just special abilities. In other words, here's my exhortation to you. Don't sit around and wait to discover what your spiritual, your hidden gifts are. Just serve. Uh, not so much, God, what are my special abilities? But instead, God, where do you want me to serve? Here maybe is a better way to look at the spiritual gifts, a, a biblical alternative. Uh, all our ministries, uh, some are also abilities. Um, roles, ministries, assignments, functions, all of these are spiritual gifts. So here's the point I want to make. I think the Apostle Paul would have us spend more time uh, on finding ways to serve than in discovering what our spiritual gifts are. All those gifts are, are in the context of service and activities. Uh, those are even the words Paul uses. So this allows you to use your natural abilities to serve God and serve the people of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I actually think this is liberating. I think this is a much better way to think about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are not always and only special abilities to discover. They are ministry roles and assignments and functions. A clarifying question for you to ask yourself is, clearly I am responsible to help build up the body of Christ. How can I best do this? Uh, where are the needs? Where are the opportunities to serve? Your personality, your experience, your natural talents will all help inform the ways that you contribute and the ways that you serve. Look for ministry assignments all around you. Uh, don't look for your gift and then wait for a ministry. Look for a ministry and pray that the Lord gives you the strength to do it. I hope that makes sense. Ephesians 4, 7 says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace has been given you to build up the body. There are really no excuses to not serve. Uh, Kenneth Bairding wrote a very good book called, on spiritual gifts called What Are the Spiritual Gifts? And he really, I'm borrowing from him uh, on, on this challenging of the conventional view. But I want to quote him here. He says, God simply assigns each believer to at least one area of ministry, and probably to more in most cases. This means that each person who belongs to Christ should be actively involved in the work of the ministry on some level. One woman I know almost dropped out of teaching women's Bible studies just before her first teaching session because she was struggling to get over her fear of public speaking. In the process, she began to question whether she was actually gifted to teach, that is the conventional view. The irony was that for a long time leading up to this struggle, she'd sensed a strong calling to just such a teaching ministry, perhaps even as her central life ministry. As it turned out, she confronted her fear and began teaching regularly to the great blessing of many women, herself included. Because of the conventional view of gifts as abilities, she perceived her lack of ability as an excuse for not entering a particular ministry, even though everything else pointed her in that direction. She wouldn't have been tempted to use this, as an, this excuse if she'd been reading these gifts as ministry callings, since she was already convinced of God's leading. So uh, just look for ways to serve, 
Look for ministry opportunities. Uh, take on special roles. By the way, this is why things might change. Maybe you, you're serving in some area uh, for a year and then you shift gears and you start serving in this area. The gifts can change. Uh, they can amend. You can grow in things. You take on an assignment. You take on a role. Uh, maybe it's just for a season. Uh, listen to these one another commands. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Build up one another. Be at peace with one another. Receive and accept one another. Admonish one another. Greet one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear the burdens of one another. Be patient with one another. Be kind to one another. Submit to one another. Forgive. Seek the good. Stimulate one another. Confess sins to one another. Pray for one another. Be hospitable. Be humble towards one another. You can't do this alone. Do you see the design? This is all, the one anothering is part, in, part and parcel of the assembly. And then the negative commands, don't judge, provoke, envy, lie, hate, or complain to one another. All right, the third purpose of the church is to proclaim the gospel of grace uh, to the lost. And this is going to leak into our next uh, two uh, messages, but... Uh, it's important to know that this is, this is one of the main things we do as a church, that the church does. Let me tell a story Gene Apple tells about a family that was vacationing out at a lake one summer. Dad had been puttering out by the boathouse. Two of his sons, a 12-year-old and a 3-year-old, were down playing along the dock. The 12-year-old was supposed to be watching his little brother, but he got distracted. The three-year-old little Billy thought that would be a good time to check out the shiny aluminum fishing boat tied up at the end of the dock. So he went to the dock and put one foot on the boat and one foot on the dock, and he lost his balance and he fell into the water, which was about five or six feet deep. The splash alerted the 12-year-old who let out a piercing scream Dad came running from the boathouse, jumped into the water, swam down, but unable to see anything, came back up for air. Sick with panic, he went right back down into the murky water, and he's feeling around the bottom, and, and he can't feel anything. Finally, on his way up, he felt little Billy's arms locked in a death grip around the bottom of the dock underneath the water about four feet underneath. Prying the, the boy's fingers loose, they burst up through the surface to fill their lungs with life-giving air. And finally, when the adrenaline had stopped surging and the nerves calmed down a little bit, the father asked the son, what on earth were you doing down there hanging onto the post so far underneath the water? And little Billy's answer was classic. He said, I was just waiting for you, Dad. Just waiting for you. Well, friends, our Lord and our Savior has sent us on a rescue mission to the world. And that rescue mission is even more important and more intense and more imperative than saving human lives. It includes Billions of people, billions of souls, many of whom have never heard about the name of Jesus. I want to just remind us that 
the church has been sent on a rescue mission. We've been sent to proclaim the news. We need to break out of our isolation and comfort and remember that the Lord has made us fishers of men. Jesus made this clear in his great commission, which we'll look at. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And I'm with you always to the end of the age. Fast forward about 40 days after that. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 6 So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father's fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now right after this, the church officially starts uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out, and pretty soon you, you see uh, elders being raised up in different towns, and churches started, and that's how the story of Acts goes. In other words, the result of the Great Commission is the multiplication of more and more churches. Uh, churches would start, people would share the gospel with unbelievers, Those unbelievers would, by God's grace, come to saving faith in Christ. They would become disciples. They'd get baptized. They would would start attending a local assembly and start worshiping God and hearing the word of God proclaimed and the Lord's Supper was taken. And and they're now involved in the body and they're serving and, and using their gifts and sharing the gospel with more folks. And those disciples make more disciples, And they hang out with one another, and they they don't neglect meeting together. And they worship the living God and share the news about the living God. And more and more assemblies pop up, and more and more elders and deacons are trained up, and, and more people have ministry and a job to do, and on and on and on and on throughout the world. That's what's happening. But one of the key purposes of the church is to get the good news out there. Proclaim it. And this happens in evangelism. It happens in missions. The means of doing missions and evangelism is the church. And the result of doing missions and evangelism is more and more churches. Does that make sense? I want you to see that. It's been said that missions exists because worship doesn't. There are people out there who've not yet heard of Christ tasted of Christ, enjoyed Christ. They're deaf to Christ. They're blind to Christ. They're dead to Christ. And we have a message that will make them come alive to God. And this matters. It matters to the Lord, and it should matter to the church. It should matter to you in Bangalore. Charles Spurgeon said, if you have no wish for others to be saved, then you're not saved yourself. You can be sure of that. Listen, friends, we've been given a specific message to the nations. It's not politics. It's not entertainment. It's not amusements and laughter and hilarity. It's not self-help or self-improvement or successful tips on living. It's not social justice and good deeds. 
It's the message about Jesus Christ and the blessing that he brings. Repent and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Come under his rule and reign now. Cast yourself upon Christ because there's a coming judgment. Bend the knee to Jesus. Receive the blessing. Receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. The worst of sinners can be saved. And so this is the reminder for us when we gather together and assemble together. We have a mission. We have a message. We've been given a focus, and it's a gospel focus. We've been given marching orders. We've been given direction and instruction from the Lord Jesus Christ. We are sent by God on a rescue mission. That's the reality. And we're not at liberty to set our own agenda, come up with our own message, We are people with a message, and it's his message. People on mission, and it's his mission. So Christians are people with a message. We proclaim a message. We're gospel-driven people. Missions-driven people. Alex Hay says, The Lord founded the church as a missionary organization. Such was its original structure. It was not an ecclesiastical organization with missionary endeavor as a department of its work. Missionaries were its leaders. Its primary purpose was missionary, and all its members engaged in the propagation of the gospel. I love that. I love that quote. So this message is a reminder for us as Christians to remember what our main call is. We are not people who are only concerned about social issues like sex trafficking and hunger relief and carbon emissions. Uh, Social justice, you could say, is part of loving your neighbor as yourself, but it's not our primary message. Kevin DeYoung said, it's not the church's responsibility to right every wrong or meet every need, though we have biblical motivation to do some of both. It is our responsibility, however, our unique mission and plain priority that this unpopular, impractical gospel message gets told, that neighbors and nations may know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing they may have life in his name. The church is given a commission that's totally unique from every other organization in the world, We have a unique message. You look at the book of Acts and you see the sowing of seeds, bold proclamation and teaching, and the apostles having a teaching ministry, and they're sowing seeds like Jesus described, and a fifth of the book of Acts is sermons, and they had this this great commission that's spreading around the word of God. And so the DNA of the church needs to be proclamation and teaching and missions and evangelism. We need to live and breathe missions, live and breathe evangelism, live and breathe uh, the sowing of the seed of the word of God everywhere we can. We are living now in the era of the scattering of the seed. This is the era, the the, the mystery of uh, the kingdom. This is the era. And it means missions and evangelism and discipleship training and education, adult education and Sunday school, which we'll talk about in the next session. This is the era of the Word of God. I want to close with a story 
told of John Harper. John Harper was born in a Christian home in Glasgow, Scotland in 1872. When he was about 14 years old, he became a Christian himself. And from that time on, he began to tell others about Christ. At 17 years of age, he began to preach, going down the streets of his village and pouring out his soul in passionate pleading for men to be reconciled to God. After five or six years of toiling on street corners, preaching the gospel and working in the mill during the day, Harper was taken in by the Reverend E.A. Carter of Baptist Pioneer Mission in London. This set Harper free to devote his whole time and energy to the work dear to his heart, evangelism. Soon in September 1896, Harper started his own church. And this church, which he began with just 25 members, numbered about 500 by the time he left 13 years later. During this time, he had been both married and widowed. Before he lost his wife, God blessed Harper with a beautiful little girl named Nana. Harper's life was an eventful one. He almost drowned three different times. When he was two and a half years of age, he fell into a well but was resuscitated by his mother. At the age of 26, he was swept out to sea by a reverse current and barely survived. And at 32, he faced death on a leaking ship in the Mediterranean. If anything, these brushes with death simply seem to confirm John Harper and his zeal for evangelism, which marked him out for the rest of the days of his life. While pastoring his church in London, Harper continued his fervent and faithful evangelism. In fact, he was such a zealous evangelist that Moody Church in Chicago asked him to come over to America for a series of meetings. He did, and they went really well. A few years later, Moody Church asked him if he would come back again. And so it was that Harper boarded a ship one day with a second-class ticket to Southampton, England, for the voyage to America. Harper's wife had died just a few years before, and he had with him his only child, Nana, who was age six. What happened after this we know mainly from two sources. One is Nana, who died in 1986 at the age of 80. She remembered being woken up by her father a few nights into their journey. It was about midnight. And he said that the ship that they were on had struck an iceberg. Harper told Nana that another ship was just about there to rescue them. But as a precaution, he was going to put her on a lifeboat with her older cousin who was accompanying them. As for Harper, he would wait till the other ship arrived. The rest of the story is a tragedy well known. Little Nana and her cousin were saved, and the ship they were on was the Titanic. The only way we know what happened to John Harper after is because, in a prayer meeting in Hamilton, Ontario, some months later, a young Scotsman stood up and, with tears, told the extraordinary story of how he was converted. He explained that he had been on the Titanic the night it struck the iceberg. He clung to a piece of floating debris in the freezing waters. Suddenly, he said, a wave brought a man near, John Harper. 
He too was holding a piece of wreckage. He called out, man, are you saved? No, I'm not, I replied. He shouted back, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore Harper away, but a little later he was washed back beside me again. Are you saved now? He called out. No, I answered. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And then losing his hold on the wood, Harper sank. And there alone in the night with two miles of water under me, I trusted Christ as my Savior. I'm John Harper's last convert. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see the purpose of the church. It exists to exalt Christ and worship Christ. So make gathering a priority. It also is to build up and serve the family of God. So find a way to serve and be a blessing to those in the assembly, in the church, at Calvary. But also it is to proclaim the gospel to the lost. And I pray that we would have the kind of evangelistic zeal of John Harper calling people to trust in Christ alone for their salvation. This is the purpose of the church. May we live it out. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time uh, together. And I, I ask that you would bless them now as they think through and discuss uh, the purpose of the church. Um, ways that they can amend and adapt and adjust uh, to really your design for the church. Uh, and Lord, especially in the messages to come, I pray that you would help each individual uh, and all of the leaders to cast a vision uh, for the Great Commission, uh, for the multiplication of more churches, uh, as these are ecosystems of your uh, providential care and love and design. Uh, so bless them now as they discuss. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.